Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good morning. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm Celia Menchel, chair of the club's member-led Middle East Forum. And now, before I introduce our distinguished moderator for today, I'd like to mention that Sunday was International United Nations Refugees Day, and I hope that we can give a thought to the millions of refugees, especially the 7 million-plus Syrian refugees. And now I'd like to introduce our distinguished moderator, Dr. Benafshe Kanush, the Vice Chair of the Middle East Member-Led Forum. Thank you. Good morning and welcome to this virtual Commonwealth Club program called Ending America's Never-Ending War, presented by the club's member-led Middle East Forum. The program will soon be available on YouTube at commonwealthclub.org under past events. I'm Dr. Banaf Shekhenoush, Vice Chair of the Middle East Forum and today's moderator. A reminder also to please submit your questions for the question and answer period via the chart, uh, via the chat. Um, It's been almost two decades since the United States uh, invaded Afghanistan. The war that was planned to be a short one has turned into a never-ending one with great human costs to both Afghans and Americans. The United States has been uh, at a standstill trying to really figure out how to withdraw and whether or not to withdraw completely. And one reason for that is that there are multiple stakeholders involved in this conflict, not only inside Afghanistan, the people of Afghanistan, the largest stakeholders in this never-ending conflict, but also numerous neighbors that Afghanistan has. Needless to say, the geopolitics of the Afghan conflict are extremely complex and sometimes overshadow the actual human stories that one of our, at least both our panelists today, will also bring to the fourth, the human narrative of what this conflict has meant to the Afghan people. There are numerous regional alliances or coalitions that are informal or de facto that are being currently pondered in order to respond to what the United States might do next in Afghanistan. The situation is very complicated. Countries like Iran, Russia, China, India, Pakistan, Tajikistan, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and the Gulf Cooperation Council Arab states are just a few of the very prominent stakeholders in Afghanistan's future. Qatar itself has been hosting the U.S.-Taliban peace talks. So today we have two very distinguished panelists to discuss some of these very complicated stories. And we do look forward to your questions to unravel the mystery of Afghanistan's future. Now it's my pleasure to introduce our panelists. Atah Argandawal is a noted humanitarian, an Afghan consultant, and a former refugee. He is the author of several books, including The The Self-Sufficient Global Citizen and Lost Decency, The Untold Afghan Story. Our second panelist is Humaira Gilzai. She is the co-founder of the Afghan Friends Network, and she instituted the sister-city relationship between Hayward, California, and Ghazni in Afghanistan. She is a women's rights advocate, 
and a cultural expert on Afghanistan. Please welcome Atar Gandawal. Thank you very much, Dr. Rikanoush. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, you set the stage perfectly. Uh, by describing what has happened to Afghanistan. So I appreciate that. And uh, certainly uh, it's an opportunity today to really go over several key factors that got us to this stage. But first I wanna thank Celia and Commonwealth Club for this opportunity uh, to be able to shed light on many, many areas that uh, of course offer interest uh, to many around the world. Uh, Again, when we talk about Afghanistan in the last four years in particular, it is really, you know, we can write books and you can, there are uh, amazing relative, I mean, narratives that exist. And especially in light of the availability and resources that are uh, available throughout the world on social media, uh, I mean, they can go any directions. But what I'd like to do today is to uh, basically, it's an opportunity for me to basically speak a little bit on behalf of the Afghan people, if you will, because that's again the nation that and the people that have been devastated for the last 40 years. And if you really, if there is a reference to the word, let's say, victim, I do not believe that there is a more uh, better country or a place where you can basically uh, look at and say, okay, how a country can be victimized because of foreign influence throughout its history. But anyway, I mean, the long history of Afghanistan is a very rich history, as we all know, and it's been invaded many times throughout the history. But I would say, again, the, the it's best to just focus on the last 40 years, but mainly in the last 20 years since uh, invasion of uh, Afghanistan by the United States. Let me just briefly go over the history. But if you look at Afghanistan's history since 1919, all the way to the late 70s, Afghanistan really had a relatively very peaceful um, situation. It had a great environment. It was a country that was really had, didn't have any challenges. It was really one of the best neutral countries on earth. It was a very peaceful place. And as a matter of fact, uh, it had probably one of the model type of uh, situation where basically so many countries from United States to all the superpowers and many regional powers, they were really good friends of Afghanistan and the people were really engaged. And if you look at the development and the progress on in the infrastructure that have been built in the last, let's say, uh, 70 years or 60 years, a lot of it really was as a result of just amazing work on relationship that existed between even international powers from United States to Russia, France, Japan, and they were all in one way or another involved in Afghan, uh, basically infrastructure. And so Afghanistan really benefited from all of those and ultimately becoming, you know, uh, all, something that everybody was familiar with. And that was the darling of the West at the time in a major tourist destination. So from those peaceful days, all, all the way to what has happened to, uh, to now, and especially to what led to the invasion of uh, Soviet Union. Uh, that's really the hard piece. That's really the kind of the devastating piece of this because it was again, the influence of Soviet Union through uh, obviously all civil and even military installations and that led to the ultimate invasion of Afghanistan and the fall of the Afghan government. But basically, the, our challenges did start in reality in 1973 when the king was overthrown 
Uh, and so I would not talk too much about the history because my colleague Homera will go over some of these aspects for now. But what I'd like to do is to basically focus, uh, let's say again on those 20 years in the last 20 years of Afghanistan and what really led, led us to be where we are today. And the main point which really uh, the international community, even social media, they do not talk about or refer to is of course, of course is the root causes of what really happened in Afghanistan. So uh, it all really started with Bonn and, and in Germany when after the uh, events of 9-11, an ultimate invasion of Afghanistan by the United States, uh, the Bonn agreement that was signed there and that, uh, that really had some really key elements some really fundamental elements at the very beginning, which were very actually practical. And that really called for the involvement and engagement of a lot of uh, Afghan scholars from all around the world. Uh, and they were going to be invited, the people were going to be engaged in the Afghan government uh, from uh, several areas, because as you people know, the majority of the Afghan scholars in the educated communities and those that could they left Afghanistan. So basically they were looking for people to come from all over and help build this next generation of Afghans or the government in, in the Alaheed. But that's something that the uh, Mujahideen totally opposed and rejected. And they ultimately decided to bring in a, someone that's, that was totally had no qualification for to run a government and somebody who will basically had links with the Mujahideen and had been engaged in the fight against Russians. And that was in Karzai. And of course, the Mujahideen were able to convince everybody that that was the best way to go. And basically, they will be relying on militias and build the government. So basically, it legitimized the entire uh, Mujahideen and the Karzai regime, which basically, again, did not uh, have the expertise and the qualifications to run a government. So that really was the key to this whole problems and why where we are today. The second piece of it is really the, again, because these people didn't have any interest in building a real national army. Because if they had looked at the Afghanistan's history, Afghanistan had one of the best armies in the region. As a matter of fact, it was really second to Turkey and maybe some other nations. So it was a very powerful uh, army. And that's something that they totally denied and ignored to build from the very beginning. Because of, as you can all imagine, with flow of billions of dollars into uh, uh, Afghan soil, there were enough and more than enough resources to build a national army. And that was not the focus. So what happened was they instead started to focus on uh, militias. And all of these former commanders that they were basically uh, uh, introduced their own rosters of armies and militias. And some of them claimed to have anywhere from 10,000 to 40,000 fighters. So as a result, they were able to basically cash in and got, get a lot of money from the United States, from US and of course in the NATO in general. And what happened was this really gave power and this really empowered the, the Mujahideen or the former commanders who were not really the you know, technocrats and people that of you know, higher education and people that with the government experience. So what happened as a result, these became very powerful members of who they are today. And we would refer to warlords today in Afghanistan. That's exactly what we're talking about. These are very powerful warlords with deep pockets and they have influences in regional parts of Afghanistan. And they were as a result, of course, able to 
basically transfer a lot of their assets to outside countries. And that's been happening from Dubai to Switzerland to all over the, the place. And that's something that Afghan people are very, very frustrated with. And they know it's, it's a fact. Uh, the other uh, basically big piece that really hurt the Afghan, uh, Afghanistan in its situation was again, this whole notion of relying on NGOs and instead of building, uh, let's say if they were thinking of building a nation and some a nation that didn't have a government. And when it was devastated, you know, as you know, with the Taliban ring, there were no government offices, there were no computers, there was no system, there was no monetary system, there was no wire system. So everything was cash. And as a matter of fact, as cash flew inside Afghanistan in the way that it did, and through truckloads and in the hands of the wrong people, what happened was, of course, that's what was the introduction of a cash economy. A fraudulent cash economy is what Afghanistan faced. But all through the hands of just a few, and these people, and the very few, again, got, in, got involved with thousands of NGOs that had no business going to Afghanistan. These are, again, inside and regional, and even from the United States, the NGOs that got involved in the Afghan affairs, and they basically cashed in billions of dollars and the majority of those monies never stayed in there. So that was also a huge mistake that obviously did not materialize in the reason why the infrastructure of Afghanistan never got a chance to be built. So there was no focus on the real infrastructure because there wasn't about the United Nations or a government agency to do that. So those were some of the bigger elements. And of course, we can then refer to the rise of Taliban, which really the rise of Taliban indeed started all the way back in a dates to Mujahideen's reign. And that's the time when tons of refugees when millions of refugees, Afghan refugees were living in the, in the uh, neighborhood areas and border, border areas of Pakistan. And they became really easy victims and uh, prey to Taliban recruitment and the other elements such as Al Qaeda and ISI and, and their and other extremist groups. So that's when the Taliban, again, the rise of them and the, the training and their entire, uh, I would say, development kind of went back. So that's cool. Those are some of the big areas. But one other quick point that I would refer to, and that is the opium and the narcotics, that that was never, from the very beginning of the last 20 years up to this moment, it has never been a focus. There was no real plan for eradication of, let's say, opium in Afghanistan. And that has led to where we are today, which is actually a multi-billion dollar business today. And the flow of uh, narcotics, not you know, throughout the region and also to Europe that continues to happen. So these are some of the major challenges that Afghanistan is facing. And of course, we will refer to the remaining, which was actually the civil society and, the, and the, uh, the, basically the challenges we're facing in light of Taliban's advancements. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Atar Gondoil. And now it's my pleasure to introduce uh, once again and welcome our second speaker, Humaira Gilsai, please. Thank you so much, uh, Benefshev, for having me on this panel. And I'm really honored to be here with Atan this uh, uh, morning with all of you. Um, with your permission, I'd like to start with a land acknowledgement, and then I'll go into my uh, presentation. I'm calling from the unceded land of Chamush, Tongva, and Keech, colonially known as Santa Monica. I pay respect to their elders, past and present. Let's consider the many legacies of violence, displacement, 
migration, and settlement that bring us together here today. And please join me in covering such truths today and in future public events. I have been working um, in Afghanistan for the past 18 years through my um, nonprofit that I co-founded with Af uh, called Afghan Friends Network, uh, as well as a variety of other uh, programs that I assisted in developing girls in a, uh, women's education. So it's fitting that I will talk about um, the history of Afghan women and what has happened to them in the past hundred years. And I think that is really important to understand the context of why so many Afghan female advocates are concerned about the future of Afghan women uh, when there is a power sharing with the Taliban. Um, in the 1990, uh, starting 1919, Afghanistan had a very progressive king, King Amanullah and Queen Sarayat. They were fast-paced reformers and were bringing, opening schools, giving uh, girls opportunity to get educated, opening um, uh, women-led newsletters and such. But a lot of the fast-paced changes were designed against the colonial West's uh, idea of progress rather than Afghans. Um, and some of the things that um, they were doing, which I, I think in uh, hindsight was very, very good for the future of Afghanistan, but it was too fast and it was not something that a lot of Afghan tribal leaders and in the provincial areas were able to accept. After King Amanullah abdicated, there was around four years of turmoil and a lot of what they, um, the progress that King Surya and Queen Amanullah made were reversed. Uh, but as Atab mentioned in his uh, presentation, uh, there was around a good 40, 50 years of peace in Afghanistan, um, which basically started in 1933 until 1978, uh, first with the takeover of King Zahir Shah as the president of Afghanistan, uh, the king of Afghanistan, and then his um, cousin Daoud Khan. Um, this was a very peaceful time, and but there was very cautious progress. Um, there was a lot of effort put into uh, working with uh, other countries and getting their support in Afghanistan's development. And within the country for Afghan, there were slow progress, but steady. Uh, women were, uh, the burqa was uh, no longer required. Women could go to university. Um, and women started uh, occupying a lot of professional positions. And I would say this was the Renaissance area uh, time for Afghan women uh, who became um, musicians, artists, bankers, doctors, um, teachers. Um, but unfortunately, with the uh, overthrow of Daoud Khan and the takeover of the Russians, and then the civil war, and then Taliban, and the current occupation of the U.S., there's been constant tor turmoil in the country. And as we all know, when there is fighting, the people who are most affected are, who are the collateral damage are, of course, women and girls. They're the ones that lose husbands and sons. They're the ones that 
are displaced and have to become um, dependent on uh, other family members, on other governments to be able to support themselves. They're the ones that aren't allowed to go to school or to get the proper um, medical care that they need and such. So I would say that um, from the Russian invasion until the end of Taliban, um, Afghan women were once again on a roller coaster of highs when the communist government was actually providing them a lot of uh, rights and education and such, but it was not uh, within the cultural norms of Afghanistan. And once again, there was that urban-rural divide, Kabul, Herat, uh, and uh, in northern provinces were accepting a lot of the rights that were given to the women and, and progressing and such. But in the rural areas, there was still pushback. And that was one of the things that was fueling the Mujahideen um, to fight uh, against the takeover of the country. Um, and of course, we have to remember that the Mujahideen for 10 years were funded by the U.S. through Operation Cyclone, uh, where billions of dollars um, in suitcases and, and trucks were coming into uh, Pakistan through ISI. Uh, and that was actually when the um, war economy of Afghanistan started uh, and, the, and the warlords were developed. And so uh, when the Taliban came over and took over the country after all these years, uh, five years of civil war, um, there was a major power vacuum. And at first, the Taliban were um, accepted by the Afghans and they were happy to have them. But um, there, as we all know, through uh, so much that has been written about uh, the Taliban, the things did not go well for the Afghan women. It was, I would say, the darkest years of Afghan women's rights. Um, so we come to the our era of our program, the 20 years of the U.S. occupation. Um, currently, um, despite whatever glitches that the Afghan government had, Afghanistan has the most modern constitution in Central Asia. Uh, women and girls uh, can be educated. In the constitution, men and women are equal. 25% of the parliamentary seats are allocated for women, um, Women take part in politics and in parliamentary level, as well as in um, regional and provincial levels. Uh, Sixty percent of Afghans have access to basic health with primary health care facilities. And this has actually really affected uh, women's mortality rate um, when it comes to um, childbearing and, and also the survival of infants. Uh, over 21, 20 million Afghans have access to mobile phone and 70% of the population watches TV, uh, which is really important because there is a strong flow of information to the Afghan people. Um, the, also, the life expectancy for women has increased uh, dramatically. Um, Recently, a new decree from the Afghan president, Ashraf Ghani, requires each of the 34 provinces to appoint a woman as deputy governor. So these are all great progress that has been made. But of course, um, 
we have to remember that a lot of the times the girls that are going to school, um, they stop going at age 14, uh, whether it's because their families need them to stay home and work or they're married off or there's um, recently with the uptick of the violence from the Taliban, people are just afraid to send their daughters to school. Um, Women and uh, especially women journalists and uh, politicians have been targeted for uh, attacks by the Taliban, especially in the past two years when the U.S. was negotiating with them. Um, Many Afghan journalists have been killed and teachers. For example, the schools that um, I co-founded with my local partners in Afghanistan um, have been getting threats. And the director of our school gets, um, if not uh, daily, weekly calls from the Taliban that she should cease and desist. However, the good news is that from the schools that I started 18 years ago, one of our graduates Husna Jalil is currently the deputy minister of women's affairs. So there is, you know, a a give and take in a situation which uh, may look very dire from the outside. But the important part is that Afghans are very resilient and they are working to bring balance and bring stability to bring their girls to school, even with the attack of May 9th on the uh, school that was predominantly uh, uh, serving the Hazara population. The next day, the fathers were taking their daughters to school. So we have to remember the resilience of Afghan people. So what is going on with this mysterious peace deal? And I want to kind of go back to that Afghans have always known there has to be a peace deal with the with the Taliban. This is not a U.S. invention or idea. Uh, from the time that Karzai took uh, uh, over uh, since 2002, he, and during his time, he did several times try to start negotiations with the Taliban. And many times it was actually the U.S.-led forces um, that dissuaded him. It wasn't until Hillary Clinton was became the um, Secretary of State, where she kind of nodded to him to have secret talks with the Taliban. So um, Afghan leaders didn't really fall asleep at the wheel. They did know, but a lot of their uh, support, their ability to have um, uh, stability in Afghanistan relied on outside forces, the military and such. And as Atal mentioned, there wasn't much training that was being done for the Afghan army, Afghan police to take over. So the whole country was relying on outside money, the flow of billions of dollars through the NGOs, as well as air and land support on U.S. and NATO forces. Um, Also, uh, 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 in 2018, Ashraf Ghani um, uh, extended a hand of friendship with the Taliban, and he did that after doing a lot of consensus building. And the director of our school was one of the women who was appointed to attend this jirga in Kabul, where there was... um, uh, locally uh, and and um, nationally led conversation as to what do we want from the Taliban? What are we willing to compromise and such? But at the same time that Ghani was trying to 
provide this uh, peace negotiation with the Taliban, the U.S. was secretly talking to the Taliban. And, you know, if you are the Taliban, why would you continue talking to the U.S., the Afghan president, when you have a superpower willing to talk to you and legitimize you? Um, and at first, this was, uh, you know, secret talk. But then in 2018, this became public um, when Zalmay Khalizad was appointed as the U.S. envoy. And basically through hook and crook, he was able to sign a peace deal in February 29, 2020. And I want to point out that in this peace deal, it's all around what the U.S.'s interests are. Um, which which makes sense. It is a U.S. U.S. Taliban deal, but that the U.S. forces have to leave, that the Taliban are not going to let Al Qaeda and other terrorist forces take a uh, home in Afghanistan, and um, there is no mention of uh, Afghan women's rights or no mention of keeping a civil civic civil society. So that is what is now being handed down to the Afghan government to basically continue these talks intra-Afghan uh, wise. So how do we bring peace into Afghanistan? There has to be preservation of the Republic, which Atta uh, pointed out was agreed upon in the bond conferences. Include women in the priest process, which currently is very few women are involved. And the Taliban have to have pressure on them that they need to put their positions on the table as to what they're going to do with women. Are they going to allow elections or is Afghanistan going to be an emirate? Are they going to allow um, Afghanistan to continue as a civil society? Are they going to allow lawmakers and um courts make decisions as opposed to jirgas and ulama. And also there has to be a strong support for the Afghan national security. Uh, currently, the airplanes that the Afghans, um, airplanes and helicopters they fly are all maintained by NATO, uh, NATO and U.S. forces. Uh, the equipment that they are using is uh, supplied, maintained, and funded by uh, the United States and NATO forces. And it was, these are the things that the Afghan government needs in order to hold its position against the Taliban, which is now the Doha talks are at a stalemate. So um, I would love to further um, develop on these ideas during the Q&A session. And I'd really like to thank you all for listening to me about what is such an important thing that we really need to support the Afghan women. Well, thank you very much for your remarks. Now it is time for the question and answer period. Please submit your questions via the chat. And um, I'd like to, we'd like to remind our audiences as well that this is a Commonwealth Cup program called Ending America's Forever War. And I will be available, and the program will be available on YouTube and me as your moderator available to take your questions. We do have quite a large number of questions. And I want to begin with a question to, uh, to Myra about how you anticipate a power-sharing mechanism to evolve in Afghanistan. Um, 
to be more inclusive of issues like women's rights to education. You did touch upon some of the developments in this arena, um, but if the Taliban is going to be cent- central stage in Afghanistan in terms of control over levers of power, are there any mechanisms in place or are there any mechanisms that will develop in order to ensure uh, the future of education for Afghan women, for Afghan girls? Yes, uh, thank you for asking about that because that is a very important issue. Uh, I mean, when the U.S. first invaded Afghanistan, that was the mantra that we are going to Um, We're not going to abandon the Afghan women again, and it looks like we are about to do that. Um, And the way that I think we can do this is that we fully need to understand what the Taliban's position are on the points of women's rights, women's education, women being able to vote, women um, participating in the civil society and women working, women being part of politics. There's one level is the human rights level where on the individual woman, um, what she can do, but then there's the national um, uh, goal of preserving human rights, um, continuing with what was established as one of the uh, most successful uh, constitutions in, um, or, or most modern constitutions in the um, that region. Um, at this point, the Taliban have not said one iota about what their position is on Afghan women's uh, uh, rights. Uh, they have not uh, at all shared in any way uh, what whether women are going to be able to cast ballots, whether women can continue working. Uh, They do say, and and this means something to us Afghans, um, is that they would like the society to be an Islamic society, an emirate, um, which basically means no elections. It's basically you pick a leader and then that leader continues to serve. Um, And, I feel like they are saying their position, which is that we are going to change things up and make it more within the Islamic laws as they interpret it. Um, I mean, there are Muslim countries in uh, the world who have a constitution. Their women do work. Their women participate in the um, civil society, but they are also a Muslim country. So, I don't see any pressure being put on the Taliban from the allies to come forward now and and put their position forward. And at this point, I mean, what incentive do they have? The U.S. and NATO forces are withdrawing. Um, so the, the stick is out. Um, the carrot is actually funding uh, international recognition as well as um, basically the international community putting pressure on them. Uh, I also think it's really important that the neighboring countries in Afghanistan, uh, around Afghanistan, um, buy into this peace deal. And I think for them, it is beneficial that Afghanistan stands on its own as a moderately democratic country um, and that half of its population is not put in 
behind doors or behind walls anymore. Um, so, you know, unless we know what the Taliban really are willing to commit now, and they say it up front, we are just uh, playing Russian roulette with Afghan women. And if we were to learn from history, the Taliban have not had a very good uh, track record with women's rights. Well, if I'm to interpret some of your comments, is it accurate to say that the Taliban has not held yet one-on-one talks with women's groups in Afghanistan? And if I'm incorrect or you'd like to correct me, please feel free to do so about this statement later on. But I want to raise a historic question for both of you, but I ask Atar Gandawil to step in first, if I may, which is, given what Homeira has just said, looking back at, at history and the history of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan in the past two decades, and then the performance of uh, President George Bush in deciding to go in and send troops, and then later on the Obama administration, um, followed by the Trump administration and now President Biden's administration. And we do, um, is, it, is it accurate that President Biden, for example, when he was vice president, was actually not in favor of a surge, this whole question of surge. How does this all look, fit in in how really the Afghan people look at the history of the invasion? Uh, and I'd like to hear very briefly both of your comments because we have quite a large number of questions to cover. Thank you, Dr. Kanush. Uh, first of all, just a little comment back to Humaira's, uh, just to uh, follow follow up. And that is the fact that uh, people need to understand that the Taliban are the same. These are the same Taliban that were there before and their philosophy, their ideologies have not changed. And basically they're right now looking for surrender. But if you're looking for progress, if you're looking for change in their mindset, that is just a, a, the delusion. It's not going to happen. It's really the agendas are driven from outside Afghanistan and throughout the Kuwaita and Sharia, Sharia's on the decisions that are made outside the Afghan border. So that's about that piece. But then again, when it comes to strategy and George Bush's uh, time all the way, uh, Dr. Kinesh, it's very important to understand that there has been really not a clear strategic strategy. There has not been a clear strategy all along from the very beginning, as I said, and when I mentioned those points about the lack of, you know, security, they are, you know, they're ignoring the buildup of Afghan army and all of those. So again, those all fall in line with what really happened. And then was the president change as the general change in the field every four years. Basically, what happened was as a result, we've never been able to accomplish uh, like a long term, let's say, solution to the Afghan conditions. And that even includes that surge that one time there was supposed to be a surge, but then there was really not like an end result or an end plan as to what that, that was going to do. So lack of a clear strategy in Afghanistan in the last 20 years have really hurt Afghanistan in the area, because we also know that it's not just about Afghanistan, but it's also about, like as Homera said, is the neighboring countries. The regional players are significant. This is Pakistan's proxy war. It has been there for a very long time. And, and it also involves India because that's the narrative between Pakistan and India, that whole area also in the interest that they have. On the other hand, Iran has a real interest on the, this side because they host a lot of refugees, but it's also because of narcotics and because of flow of uh, migrants. 
this, so there is a lot at stake in that area. But again, to me, the lack of a clear strategy has hurt, whether it was from George Bush all the way up to now, as a matter of fact, when it's time when people are getting and showing a lot of frustration because of the same thing, as I said, because people don't understand where we are, where do we stand with Taliban? How come the, 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 the real government of Afghanistan was totally delegitimized and not recognized? As a matter of fact, Donald Trump decided to go and talk to a Taliban, to a good group that basically did not represent the people of Afghanistan. So these are kind of the kind of strategic blunders, if you will, that, we, that get us to a point where we are, which is nothing but a lack of clarity. Well, we are where we are. And the fact is that there is a, so a peace uh, deal between the United States and um, the Taliban. And the Taliban, as Humaira was saying, is insisting on an Emirates. What, what does Humaira that entail? Does that mean a federal government? How is the Taliban in contact with women's rights groups in Afghanistan? One of our, uh, a member of our uh, audience was asking, uh, to what extent are American feminist groups aiding Afghan women in this process? Maybe you want to briefly bring uh, bring us, again, run a reality check on all of these issues with us. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, well, just uh, to touch on the point, the biggest mistake in this Afghan war is when America decided to abandon Afghanistan and go and invade Iraq. And that was the few years of vacuum that basically the Taliban were able to um, recruit, to grow, to uh, come back to Afghanistan. Um, and that was a very uh, big strategic blunder on the U.S.'s part. And, and I think that's been covered in uh, the Afghanistan papers. As far as the Taliban um, speaking to women's rights, from what I understand um, from my contacts, when a woman is in the room, the Taliban we even won't even look at them. Um, and, and I'm not saying that they are not looking at them as a form of disrespect, but it's more the fact that they divert their eyes because they do not want to um, break their own uh, norms uh, or, or the, the how they practice Islam. So in a case like that, there's, they are not meeting with Afghan women in Afghanistan. If a man, if a person cannot look another person in the eye, or at least be in the same room and, and talk straight with each other, there are no no negotiations directly. Uh, the Afghan government has been sending um, uh, two or three females um, in the negotiating team. Uh, the, when the discussions were being held in Moscow, there was one Afghan representative, and I have to say that is the fault of the Afghan government. Um, so um, there's no discussions uh, among the Afghans with the Afghan women's rights leaders. However, the Afghan women's rights leaders, if you were to uh, go on social media uh, to read uh, uh prominent newspapers in the U.S. They're writing op-ed pieces. They're putting campaigns uh, together. One of them was uh, My Red Line. Uh, really, 
asking the West for help. They are being very vocal. And as far as I'm concerned, uh, I don't think us from the West need to go save Afghan women. They have the capacity. They have the know-how. They live there. They know what to do. But there needs to be some understanding on the international level where the real powers are that that platform has to be given to them. So, um, yes, there are allies and there are helping, but really the deal makers are the governments. And the fact that the U.S. troops are leaving sooner is not voting well for the Afghan women without any kind of proper setup or proper peace between uh, the Taliban and the Afghan government. Thank you. Um, unfortunately, we have only time for two um, more questions. Um, we are running out of time, but I want to go back to what Akta Argan will discuss uh, toward the end of his last comment about so many regional actors being involved. And one of uh, our members had a question about um the prospects of tourism in Afghanistan. When will Afghanistan be the country that will open its doors to tourists all over the world? And we know that for that to happen, a level of regional understanding must emerge between um, the Taliban, the central government of Afghanistan, the United States, and many of Afghanistan's neighbors. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about that? Or if both of you would like to, please go ahead. We'll start with Ata Argandawa, please. And then Homer, because uh, if you have any further comments, please feel free to add them. Thank you. A great question. Of course, it's not just about foreign tourists, but Afghans that are interested to go back and visit the, their country. So that is a long shot. It will be quite a while before really things, uh, uh, without uh, a little clear, again, uh, peace deal, uh, and uh, it's going to be very difficult because also let's not forget the fact that Afghanistan is being flooded with a lot of weapons. So this is a country that is weaponized all over the place. So it's not just about the military aspects or the, the challenges that we'll be facing uh, and to bring the militias all into the fold and, and the Taliban and all, but it's also about really lack of security now, which is a, uh, which is a basically consensus throughout Afghanistan is the fact that just the arms are all over so that how do you control a society and how can you make it really secure for not only just Afghans, but let alone foreigners to come and visit Afghanistan. So unfortunately, we are in for this for a, for a while, uh, but if uh, peace agreements are signed and real peace comes through, Afghan people are resilient and they will welcome and they will open their arms again to tourism. Thank you. And Humayra Gilzai, would you like to add a few words here? Well, there are adventure travelers that are going to Afghanistan to experience it as a war zone, um, but also uh, river surfing uh, has been brought into Afghanistan and a lot of uh, young surfers are heading to Afghanistan as well as um, uh, forms of backcountry skiing and such. But of course, uh, all of this is wonderful and everybody's making films about it and writing about it. And um, But if there isn't peace in the country and there's a huge traveler advisory on the U.S. State Department, do not go to Afghanistan. Of course, uh, Americans are not going to be uh, going there. But uh, as I thought 
pointed out, um, it's important for Afghans to feel secure so they can travel with them. I mean, I remember when I was little, my family would go to Jalalabad during the winter because it's warm there and Kabul would be freezing. But the internal movement has been limited because people are afraid. There are car bombs, there are uh, attacks. It, it may not be necessarily on them, but they could be yeah, in at the wrong wrong place at the wrong time. So, uh, the, this peace process is very important. Uh, speaking of um, tourism, I heard that the actor Robert De Niro took advantage of some of those adventure uh, visits to Afghanistan at some point. Um, but um, let's go to our last question or two last questions. What can, given the picture that both of you have portrayed, the United States do for Afghanistan? after withdrawal and we understand it may not be a full withdrawal but still a significantly impactful one Uh, what can the united states do for afghanistan and is a civil war inevitable or if it can be prevented how do you see that happening this question is to both of you we'll start with atar afghanwil and then mayor gilsai please that's a key question that of course all the afghan nation as well are anxious and waiting to hear uh, to see how america responds and we have to understand that we really uh, people of afghanistan are very appreciative of the opportunity that they've been rescued since 9-11 and uh for the progress again there has been lots of progress as a humera refer to, there has been significant progress in many areas where we have today, millions of people are educated and the children are going to school, plus a lot of other progress in the area of social lives, as well as, let's say, sports, where we in Afghanistan today has incredible, you know, champions in Asia, and they do things that are totally impossible to hear from a war-torn country. But so what American people or Afghan people are expecting from the United States is to not give up not leave them alone. Do not walk away because, again, this country has been a a story of betrayals, uh, not only by outsiders, but by inside our own people uh, or our own warlords and so on. But in the meantime, I think that would be the biggest thing to continue support and to not give up and not to cave in into the Taliban and Pakistan request. That would be the biggest wish and hope of Afghan people from the uh, American society as well as internationally. Thank you. Omera Gilzai, would you like to add a few final words, please? Yeah. Um, one of the things I would like to request from U.S. Uh, senators and politicians uh, is that they should not take it for granted and assume that there's going to be a civil war in Afghanistan. Um, because by saying that, that basically is signaling to the Taliban that it is okay. It is something that we expect and they will act upon that. Um, last week at the uh, foreign security hearings, several U.S. senators were openly saying this. And uh, although we all think that, but for the U.S., government to be saying it as if it's a matter of fact, that basically signaling to the world, there is going to be a civil war, it's going to be really ugly, and we don't really know how to prevent it, which is probably true to a certain extent. Um, But the U.S. government should continue supporting the Afghan government. This is a government that was put in there based on the Bonn, Bonn Agreement and based on the U.S. actually uplifting um, 
uh, Ashraf Ghani from completely being an unknown to the position that he's in. Um, so the U.S. has that responsibility. The U.S. has the responsibility and the NATO forces to support the Afghan security forces because if it all comes down to it and there's fighting, the Afghan security forces needs to have airplanes that fly, um, that are maintained. Uh, for example, in... Um, uh, many years ago, uh, the U.S. lawmakers decided to get rid of the MI-17s, which were helicopters that the Afghans had from Russians. And instead, they sold the Afghan government or gave them Black Hawk helicopters. Well, Afghans knew how to maintain those Russian helicopters, but they have no idea how to uh, maintain these Black Hawks. So uh, this was a U.S. strategic decision to make Afghans reliant on on a U.S. military uh, for the long run. But all of that has to be followed through. All the things that were started, for example, the training of the Afghan forces, the police supporting them, giving them the capability to um, maintain and be paid and to function all the promises that have been made, at least on the stabilizing level, has to be followed through. Um, because if the government can hold, if there is uh, a capital, if there are, uh, if the Taliban are prevented from continuing to take over, I mean, currently 50 districts in Afghanistan have been taken over by the Taliban, then the Afghan people on the um, civil society will work on it. There are at least five or six different peace organizations that are advocating for peace um, in a peaceful way. There is no fighting. They are demonstrating and such. So Afghans are doing their best, but there are much bigger forces um, that could, you know, crush them if we don't follow through on the promises that we have made to the Afghan people. Speaking of which, uh, a big question is really what will important neighbors such as Pakistan and such as Iran do when the NATO forces, when the U.S. forces scale down? Will there be specifically between Pakistan and these forces a level of engagement that you see over Afghanistan or at least over the southern parts of Afghanistan bordering Pakistan? Uh, what is that landscape really going to look like? So again, this is a big question. And uh, from let's first go to Iran. So of course, with Iran, I think that Iran's situation, as you can imagine, in light of what's going on in that country and the basically the restrictions that they exist under, uh, I think they will continue to what they've been doing, but not engage in the level that Pakistan does. Pakistan will continue to do what they know best to interfere and to attack, to prepare and to continue. So that's one of the things that you cannot expect Pakistan unless Pakistan is really pressured by international community and held accountable because this is a country that has not been held accountable for, let's say, the last 20 years or maybe even longer. They've been doing and they've been harboring the terrorist groups in their lands. They are the launching pot for the entire uh, the Taliban uh, you know, fighters. So what else can the international community expect? And that's why these are the two dangerous, I would say, significant, of course, is Pakistan 
but Iran to some extent, but with the rest of the neighbors, we don't have to really worry. Afghanistan is pretty okay with them, even when in light of India's role, which happens to be the best friend that basically Afghanistan has in extremely great ties, uh, economically, socially. So there are really not a whole lot of issues even with the North of Afghanistan and even including Russia. But I would say that Pakistan happens to be the biggest threat to Afghanistan. Well, Humayar Gilzai, what, what do Afghan civil society groups want from its neighbors? Well, from Pakistan, they want them to stop meddling in Afghanistan. They want them to stop harboring the Taliban. They want them to stop creating dissent between the different ethnic groups of Afghanistan. I mean, the way the Taliban um, can get stronger is if Afghanistan um, is in turmoil internally between the Uzbeks, Tajiks, uh, Hazaras, uh, and Pashtuns, which is basically what the the Taliban uh, are f- predominantly from the Pashtun tribe. Um, although I'm not a big fan of um, blaming ethnic differences of Afghanistan for all the problems, but I definitely think that ISI creates a, that's the um, Pakistani secret service a lot of turmoil within the country with ethnic warfare. Um, as far as Iran is concerned, um, I feel that there has been um, a very bad blood amongst the Afghans with how the Iranians have affect, uh, treated the Afghan refugees, um, the uh, marginalization of Afghan people, uh, that a large number of Afghans were, uh, thousands of Afghans were killed systematically by the Iranian government. Um, So I think there's a lot of distrust. um, And I know that there's been some uh, reparation work that has been going on. um, But that's going to take a a lot of time because both uh, in Pakistan but more in Iran, the Afghan uh, refugees were treated as um, the lowest class, uh, lowest caste. And basically in the 20 years that they lived there, they were not given any kind of uh, rights to thrive. Um, so I think that is a problem, but I think it can be repaired. Afghans are hungry for uh, peace. And, um, uh, but I would say as far as uh, Politically, uh, Iran is going, sorry, Pakistan is going to be a big problem for um, the stability of Afghanistan. Well, I want to thank our distinguished panel, Humayra Gilzai and Atar Gandawil, uh, for uh, their comments today. And uh, I'm Benav Shekhenouj, your moderator for today's program called Ending America's Forever War. Now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California celebrating over 117 years of enlightened discussion is adjourned. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. 
think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.